0: What's good, everyone? I'm Langston Clark, founder and organizer of Entrepreneurial Appetite, a series of events dedicated to building community, promoting intellectualism, and supporting Black businesses. In this special Women's History Month edition of Entrepreneurial Appetite's Black Book Discussions, we bring you a conversation between two Black women who are making history. Dr. Diane Stewart, author of Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage, Dr. LaDrea Ingram, founder of the LaDream Institute and the Social Justice Olympic Summit.
1: Like Langston said, I am a social entrepreneur and I like to consider myself when I think about my identity, it being centered around this multi-dimensional identity. I'm a mother, I am a daughter, I am a granddaughter, I am a wife, I have five beautiful children, but I also have identity centered around addressing social equity and really engaging in efforts that build community, that build black and brown communities that had been just challenged with oppressive natures and historical trauma and racial trauma in our community. So I'm really important part of of the work that I do is centered around building community and mobilizing around areas of social justice. So I'm so grateful to be here on this evening to have a conversation around something called black love and black marriage, which really does help elevate and impact how we improve our communities. So Without further ado, I would like to introduce who I am going to call a powerhouse intellectual, Dr. Diane Stewart and Dr. Diane Stewart is a full professor at Emory University and her focuses on women and African American studies. And she focuses on heritage and cultures in Caribbean and in the Americas. She was born in Kingston, Jamaica and grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. She obtained her bachelor's degree from Colgate University in English and African American studies. She also has her MD from Harvard division. School and she received her PhD in systemic theology from Union Theology Seminar in New York City. So she is a powerhouse individual that is really gonna bring forth a great conversation. And before I ask her to introduce herself in greater depth, I just want to just allow you all the space to really engage intentionally in that chat. This is a moment to just really create a community, to create an intentional space that we're gathering and connecting with each other. It's not every day where you get a chance to be with individuals that are professors, individuals that are students, individuals that are from Canada, you have before you on this evening, individuals that are coming from all different walks of life, from different areas throughout the country, the world, and we have this opportunity to commune with each other here on today. So, please engage in the chat, get to know each other's name, and begin to mobilize in a way where we're really sharing in this community space. So, Dr. Diane, please go ahead and share a little bit more about yourself before we engage in further dialogue. Thank you so much, Dr. Ingram. And I think we said
2: we would go with first names. I'm really comfortable with that in this setting. I tell you, as I listen to you, first of all, you're you're creating a family environment, which is just so wonderful. I'm tempted to write people back because people are really talking to me in the chat. And this is beautiful and just fun. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a communicator. I am tempted. Thank you for all the Great support and well wishes over there in the chat. Um, so, as you said, I am a professor and I'm a person who knew I wanted to be a professor since my sophomore year in college. I am a professor in some ways turned public speaker. Most professors are public speakers. But in writing this book, Black Women, Black Love America's War on African American Marriage, my public really expanded. And so I find myself now engaging multiple audiences, different kinds of audiences. Yes, I created the course Black Love first in the year 2004. That course kind of went to the background for a while. But when I created that course, I, it was an undergraduate seminar. And when I created it, I did include a section of romantic and love. And... I was quite shocked by what I saw when I began to research romantic love. I had to think about what do I want to bring to the students in the class, but everywhere I turned. And talking about how dire love, dating, and marriage is for Black women in particular. In many respects, I knew that. I knew that. But to see it in the literature, the way I was seeing it, left a kind of indelible impression on me. And so even though that course lay dormant it for a couple of years, when I retaught it, I went back to those resources and additional resources and just realized at that moment, I really need to write a book that speaks to my people, that speaks to Black people, and the nation at large, anyone else who wants to listen in, and I invite others to listen in, that will look at this problem, for those of us who see it as a problem, of the low rates of quality dating, coupling, marriage, family formation for Black people. Let me not say low rates of family formation. Let me say uh, difficulties with certain kinds of family formation for African-American or people, people of African descent and and so I'm not just interested in numbers, I'm interested in quality of relationship and I felt that the conversation, the public conversation which I really picked up always focused on what black women needed to do to fix Mm themselves, what black women needed to do to make themselves more attractive in a depleted marriage market or dating market and I saw phenomena that kept occurring across the street, across the involuntary presence of people of African descent in this nation that we needed to string together from the slave trade to social media. And that's what I tried to do in this fall. So, yes, I'm a professor. I'm a wife. I'm an author. I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a granddaughter. I'm many of those things as well. I'm a mentor. Those things matter to me mentally the next generation. Along, I'm, a, I'm an institution builder, but I am also the woman who wrote this book, Black Women, Black Love, because I have a message for my people.
1: That was powerful. That was so powerful, and I love how you just walked into this humanizing this conversation. You really humanized this this conversation, and so I think it's fitting for one of the first questions as we move over to really engaging in dialogue to really talk about. Why should we be discussing this? Why is Black love and Black marriage an important conversation to be having in this present moment in time?
2: Yes, indeed. I think we all know that the family is the microcosm of society. The very first place that an infant begins to develop the hormonal um, environment to produce what is needed in that infant to become an empathetic, pro-social adult. That happens in the family. That happens between parent and infant. One of the things I've learned in teaching black love and looking at the chemistry of the brain, looking at what happens when we fall in love or when we love in other ways. We love our children and our siblings and our friends. What is going on in the brain? one of the things I learned is that we should always look into the eyes of babies when we're playing with them, because that produces the dopamine effect that allows them to begin to build the ability to empathize. The family is a microcosm of society. When we look at what has been happening to our community, I I always I mean it was happening when I was growing up. I mean there was no no difference. When we look at the pressing issues that have made front page news, especially since Obama's presidency. I always said, you know, when Obama wins, they want to kill him, but they can't. So they're going to kill black boys and black men that they can kill. And, And when we look at what happened and how those kinds of deaths, and increasingly we are bringing awareness to the deaths of black women as well the harassment, the abuse, the exploitation, the deaths of Black women and Black girls as well. When we look at all of that, it might seem like, okay, right, why Why does this matter? But when we look at how those experiences tear families apart, when we look at how um, partners, spouses, siblings, uncles and aunties, mothers and fathers and grandparents respond to the abuse, the assault on their family members, and we see what it means to take a family member away from a family. the family is impacted. So to me if we look at many of the issues that we that we contend with as it relates to policy violence versus policy privilege that you know that whites have in this country if we look at many of the issues we're contending with the family is at the center of them The family is right there. but I want to say this too we are social beings. We need and deserve love, family, and community. Plain and simple. We need fulfillment in our lives. And I tell you, at first I did not want to bring love and romance into my Black Love quote. I mean, we were doing things like we were reading Audrey Lord, Bell Hooks, we were looking at Malcolm X, Martin Luther King's literature. We were looking at love in, in the family, you know, parental love. We were looking at all kinds of things. And I thought students are gonna think that, you know, this is not a serious class if I do that, etc. But I tell you, in bringing in Black romantic love, it allowed me to talk about the CDC a study that showed that Black men Spend more quality time with their children. This was a 2013 study. Spend more quality time with their children than whites and Latino men. Who would have thought? when we think of all the controlling images and messages out there of the absent black father? Even if there is not a custodial father in the home, it doesn't mean that fathers are not involved with their children, especially in the early ages. We're seeing that a lot of fathers, black fathers are involved with their children at the early ages. So it, it allows us to address these other issues, and I would say to the students, you know, it's really important that we do a the health, because if there's one place where anti-Blackness, white racism should not enter our lives, the man, so to speak, should not, you know, trample upon us, it's once we come back inside our homes, the protection of our homes the love that we give to one another. But I found out that the man is in the bedroom, too. You know, I had to acknowledge that. But I think if there's one place that we have the most control to get that white man out of the bedroom, out of our lives, it's, it's when we close the door to our private homes. And I agree with Val Hooks. She said we must figure out a way to build cultures of love in our communities. And that love is a sanctuary against so much that we face in this anti-Black world. We should not underestimate it. We should not underestimate the power of it. And the very principles that undergird love, the qualities that we respect as of what it means to love in a healthy manner, those qualities um, are apparent across all kinds of love relationships, whether it's um, dating and marriage, whether it's child parent, whether it's friendship, those qualities are apparent across all kinds of healthy relationships. So I think it's crucial. I think we need to continue to do this work, to be thinking about it. We also need, Adria, we also need a new conversation between Black women and Black men about love. And so one of the things I tried to do in the book was to show we're so used to a deficit model that always looks at what's wrong with Black Mm -hmm. Um, But But what I wanted to show, not because I wanted to kind of curate the sources and put out some sort of museum display of what I wanted to show. No, this is literally what the sources were saying. I never knew I would write this much about Black men in this fall. But when I saw what was happening to Black men, I mean, I knew some of this. But I didn't know it to this extent. When I saw that, I had to tell that story too. And I would like Black women and men to come into conversations about love, dating, and marriage. With much more sympathy and empathy for one another, yeah. and you know, and to be fair, I, you know, I do focus on heterosexual love in my book, and I, I would say this for all kinds of love, dating, marriage, relationships. But to be fair, and to be, you know, just transparent, I, I, I did focus on heterosexual common so that's important to me as well in this time of what I see on social media, what I, what I've engaged. We need a new conversation that's based on empathy, sympathy, and hope, and faith in one another.
1: That is is that that is some power words right there. You, You use so many different words that I think can be highlighted in this. But I think what you said right there was a mouthful specifically around Black women aren't the problem. There's a social reality. There are social conditions that are impacting what you call the forbidden love. And I would really like you to really hone in on that on On this evening, for individuals to really truly understand that concept because to really embrace love. It's to be able to understand the forces that are coming against it. And your book really does that. And it's in helping other individuals know it's not you. You just have to understand the conditions that may be working against you so that you know how to fully engage and embrace love in the way that you deserve, in the way that you are destined to have. And so I would love for you to really talk a little bit more about the social realities, the social constructs that exist that may be fighting against individuals being able to experience the fullness of what love has to offer?
2: First of all, when people go back and listen to this, please stop on how you just framed that. I haven't heard anyone frame it better than what you just framed because I know that some audiences have trouble with the trauma that this book presents through the stories of our ancestors. I know that some people have trouble with it, but I love the way You presented it. Someone that I know a Black woman said, you know, reading your book made me feel like, my goodness, if they went through that and they lost, I know I can try harder in my marriage. It gave me the motivation. It gave me the inspiration to know that they loved in a way that could be transgenerational. That could impact me this way by hearing their stories. That was it. Was really gratifying to hear. So yes, I I needed to name this this problem, this issue. And so I did call it Forbidden Blackmail. And what I discovered, and the reason I shaped the book the way I did. There's only one issue that dropped out that I just couldn't bring it in, in this book. And I'll say what that is in a second. But the reason I shaped it the way I did is because I saw four major, what I call pillars of forbidden black love. And what I mean by forbidden black love are the systems and structures that make love, and I mean healthy, quality, love, coupling, and marriage, difficult delayed or impossible for millions of black people. That's that's what I mean by it. I'll say it one more time. The systems and structures that make love, coupling, and marriage difficult, delayed or impossible for millions of black people. That's what I mean by African Black Love. And I found that there were four major The first is the separation of black marriages and families. Black couples and families. That begins with the slave trade. When we have most women who are brought into the slave trade, being of marriage age, we have to pause and realize that the separation of black families and marriages began on the African continent. It impacted our relatives in Africa as much as it impacted us. You take someone from the family unit, it tears that link family asunder. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, I just had to believe that and just and realize that and start there. But that continues throughout slavery, right It continues throughout saving. When we think of the fact that after the outline of the International Slave Case, we have close to 700,000 couples being separated and families. When we look at all slavery we have about a million black people being moved from eastern quarter over to western states and they're being separated from their children, their siblings, their parents, their spouses. Many, many, many couples. many couples did not even live on the same farms and on large plantations, even those were in the minority, on large plantations, many of them, because of the way gender assignments were often divided, men, they wanted to save time so that men could be near their workstations and women and the children could be in, in, near their own workstations. And so even on large plantations, people could have to uh, you know walk hours just to see their loved one. So this is the nature of slavery. The master and the mistress's authority trumps the authority and the son of knowledge, and so we know that the slave system, you know, shows that. The other, the other pillar is, and, and that continues when we look at what, what happened with welfare. When we look at what's going on with um, mass incarceration, so that continues. That's why I named that a pillar. The, other, the second one is racist and, and sexist jurisprudence, policies, and legal transactions. So, you know, I like Moya Bailey's term, Sajun Noir, and I played with that and said "misandry noir. We have to talk about misandry noir as well. Anti-black male, and of policies, legislation, and practices. And so one of the things that becomes really clear, and I, I cite one of my former students, Dr. Alexis Wells, who's a professor of... Religion at Stanford University. Um, she was at Vanderbilt for several years and she recently moved to Stanford, but her book is absolutely phenomenal. Now she's someone, um, that you would, that should be on this program. Um, the souls of women folk. Um, and she's looking at, um, women, women's culture, women's spirituality, women's religiosity. Um, in the lower south during, um, the antebellum period. And Alexa says, Dr. Wells says, Wells Okogoname, let me say her full name. She says, the black woman's womb is a capital asset. We cannot, we cannot forget that oftentimes because of the kinds of Andrew-centric issues we are told. From childhood, elementary school to, you know, to adulthood and the way they're trained, even in college and et cetera. The default slave is a black man. If there's going to be a default, it needs to be the black woman because it's only through her womb that more quote unquote slaves are made. And so what we see is, for example, in 19th century wills, people, the owners of enslaved Africans, um, willing them upon their death to, let's say, their wives or what have you. And basically, Once my wife dies, the husband is to go free, for example, but the wife and her increase must be sold. So, it, because her womb is a capital asset, oh no, we're going to make money off of this. So it must be sold and divided amongst my grandchildren. So that's what I mean by racist, sexist policies. What's going on with in the post-emancipation period? How marriage is understood? How black widows, of Civil War veterans, are being treated? All, and we see it all the way up to today. The third: sexual and reproductive violence. And control. I don't even need to say more about that. Sexual and reproductive violence and control. The bleeding that black women and men were forced to do, the, the creation of it, a whole color caste system as a result of coercive or abusive rape and sexual liaisons between black women and white men. And related to that the fourth is colorism and phenotypic stratification. Now, I say CPS because when we say colorism, we often only think of skin color, maybe hair texture, but I mean all of the phenotypic features that are deemed to be either beautiful and valuable or the opposite, right? Grotesque, ugly, and not valuable. And so those those realities, those pillars still impact us today. They begin with slavery slave the the slave today, and they all impact us today.
1: Ooh. There's something that you said in the midst of all of that insight was that we had to breathe. Yes. And I think sometimes we are aware, but we don't acknowledge because in order to truly breathe, you have to turn your, your awareness into acknowledgement that can then create action and allow you to agree. So there's so much that needs to happen for healing, right? There's so much healing that needs to happen. And The more these conversations we have, the more feeling can be, you know, demonstrated in our community. So I think this is a perfect opportunity to really hone in on. So you you talked about forbidden, which is defined as not allowed. And then also one of my favorite quotes in your book, you talk about this concept of hidden. And you said that you describe how black women often lack lack of options for meaningful love and partnership with black men. Is the most hidden and thus neglected civil rights issue to date. And when we think about hidden, that means uncovered. So how does this forbidden concept in this, this hidden truth possibly create continuous relationship between black men and black women? How do we address that? How do we, how can we think about how these conversations can promote healing?
2: Absolutely. Because marriage is very personal. Right? Love and dating is very personal. We often keep it within that realm. But marriage is a civil institution. We have over a dozen cases decided at the Supreme Court where the justices have declared marriage a civil right. It is a civil institution. It, I mean, one of the things that made it that was how do we socialize the freed men and women after slavery into dutiful citizens? One of the ways to do that is through, um, inculcating in them a concept of patriarchal marriage and family that will allow them to be socially controlled and to behave well, so to speak. And so, and so, when we think about it, it is actually a civil institution. And when we think about the benefits of marriage, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about when it works well and it's healthy, it becomes really a civil right. Black people deserve the benefits of what marriage can bring. It brings companionship. It brings a structure for regulating the care of, of, of young people and elders. It, um, it brings support. It brings wealth building. I mean, there there are things to be said about that in the black community, given how far behind we are. But generally speaking, it means that it means the formation of family and community. This is a civil right. That we are being denied, and I think if we begin to look at it as a civil rights issue, if we begin to do that, I think we can begin to turn the corner out on it. I think we can have, and 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 because I kind of shift the gaze away from only discussing this issue as a personal issue doesn't mean like I don't feel that people should constantly work on themselves. We must all constantly seek to be better persons for ourselves and those we love. I am not against self-help, counseling, therapy, conversation. I'm all for it. But if we want to solve this problem, I am convinced that the only way we're going to do it is if we treat it as a civil right that it is, that's being denied us, and put it on our activist agendas. Black people, black women are phenomenal at civil rights. So many people have benefited from civil rights in this country as a result of our leadership. And so put it on the agenda so that we can we can. we can do something about it for future generations at a systemic and structural level, right? So that it's just not one or two and so many people are disappointed.
1: Yeah. And you really touch on some of the initiatives that have been done. You talked about when Bush's administration, he worked on trying to address it through policy initiatives. Obama furthered it. And then you talked about how Trump also tried to further it as well. but. Because they're not getting to the roots.
2: Exactly. The the, the problem that I have, and this is where the Democrats and the Republicans are no different to me. The problem that I have is they're always operating out of a deficit model. They're always only treating symptoms. They're never getting to the root of what has caused these symptoms. High rates of crime, high rates of mass incarceration in Black communities, particularly poor and under-resourced Black communities. high rates of health issues, Um, all of these are symptoms of underlying conditions. And I tell you, one of the reasons I call chapter two the reign of terror, I don't know if most of the audience would know, but there are many free men and women coming out of slavery that said slavery was better than freedom. And if you read chapter two, you'll know why they said it. I tell you, you will know why they said it. And so the government had an opportunity at that moment to try to make things right. And what does the government do? Instead of paying reparations, instead of adequately addressing the harm of slavery, of what it means to render a human being bleeding cargo, what it means to render a human being a commodity that produces more commodities, instead of, it it can never make up for all the harm, but some of it, the government did what? Gave land grants to millions of white immigrants and other white Americans who were just here. Basically, they had to pay a filing fee and they got wonderful land grants. It has created the white middle class, in addition to the GI Bill, where many blacks um, suffered and did not get access To benefits that they were due from the GI Bill, so this is what we're grappling with here. You know, many people, especially—I mean, I'm an immigrant black, so I know—I grew up here. But many people, especially immigrant blacks, really have been sold this myth, and of course, many white Americans and other Americans have been sold this myth that with Martin Luther King and civil rights, it was all—it was all better. But they don't realize how bad it even got after slavery, and how that further debilitated black people. So. One, we have to look at the ten or more generations of the wealth that was stolen from Black during slavery. We have to deal with that. But I tell you, my colleague, she's a phenomenal, brilliant demographer, Dr. Janira Easy. We were on a panel together. I was talking about my book, and she was—it was about housing, and and that was a chapter that didn't—that I didn't write. Like. The chapter was going to be a house to loving because when we look at housing. Regulations, racist covenants that locked black people out of white neighborhoods, redlining that didn't value black neighborhoods and where banks would not provide support for investing in black neighborhoods. All of these things about the fair housing acts, urban renewal. Destroy. It. You need a place to law You need a place to lay your head at night. Gentrification. So that's another chapter that should have been in the book. I tried to sneak it in between three and four a little bit, but 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 I tell you, she says, you know, we can get reparations. we give my research. We're going to lose it in one generation if we don't deal with this violent. These racist, violent policies that literally sucks black people's resources away from themselves. So I still say, black people, I still say reparations, wealth building, what I call it in the book is, we need to grapple with, to deal with at a systemic and structural level, I mean the government, I mean the people who are responsible for this, with inherited poverty and wealthlessness. Mm -hmm. We don't just need salaries, we need and deserve wealth. And I talk about one particular initiative. That is, um, you know, Derek Hamilton's initiative, the phenomenal economist on um, baby bombs, which is now being tried in D.C., I understand. I think that's a more recent thing. So hopefully it can become national as a way to think about that. We need to overcome, and we haven't talked much about this, the, the ideal, we need to dispense with the idealized image of the nuclear patriarchal family as, as is again, right? the idealism family, right? The perfect, the God, um, God revealed, biblically revealed, God given institution. And I know that's hard for a lot of people, especially a lot of Christians. I know it is. But you've got to sit with chapter two and you will see how missionaries coming south, how the federal government, particularly through the Freedmen's Bureau, which was, which was um, authorized to, to marry and certify the marriages of black people after slavery, how they inculcated in black freed women and men, the notion that the husband is the head of the household, totally a Eurocentric patriarchal notion, not in any way related to our African heritage at all, that wives must be submissive to their husbands and helpmates for their husbands. But what we lack oftentimes is a flexible and, and informed, interpretive approach to the Bible. We have allowed white fundamentalists and evangelical Christians to dictate to us how we should interpret that Bible. That happened in the early 20th century. Most black people were not Christian by the end of slavery. A lot of people think that they were, but they weren't. Black people become, it's the Civil War and it's so-called success that really began to turn some black folk onto the, okay, maybe this God really did come through for us then. That's what the, and the institutionalization, right? And the support and the power of the black church, right? Having, joining a black church was like, you know, claiming your own last name, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was so important. It was the, the protective space in many respects.
0: Hey everyone, thank you again for your support of Entrepreneurial Appetite's Black Book Discussions. Beginning this season, we are inviting our listeners to support the show through our Patreon website. The founding 55 patrons will get live access to our monthly discussions for only $5 a month. Your support will help us hire an intern or freelancer to help with the production of the show. Of course, you can also support us by giving us five stars, leaving a positive comment, or sharing the show with a few friends. Thank you for your continued support.
2: But it did become a patriarchal our church, and increasingly, increasingly so. And we've been said by white slave owners, by white evangelists, by white missionaries, that the model that we have come to idealize as the God-given institution of marriage and family is the biblically revealed model that we must internalize. I think we need to be much more creative. I think we need to be much more creative in our biblical interpretations. I think we need to be, which our ancestors were, coming out of slavery, they were much more creative than we are today, especially after the rise of fundamentalism in the early 20th century. I also think that we need to, to ask ourselves, what models, what Afrikanah family formed do we have? doesn't matter if they've tried to pathologize them. They've tried to pathologize them. But what are those family forms that we have? For example, like the matrifocal unit, right? Or what people would call extended family, you know, play cousins and all this kind of stuff, right? What do we have that has been working for us? Why would we want to atomize ourselves into nuclear family units as Black people in this anti Black world? We need extension. We need connection. Because as I say in the book, is the family wealth, kinship wealth, can not go without financial wealth, because what happens with those connections, the more we're connected our families end up bleeding and dreaming just the few people that have been able to make it to a decent salary. It's not the woman's fault, it's not the person who has that decent salary's fault that we don't have wealth. to so, fall back on. And so that's why I say it has to be about wealth building and overcoming inherited poverty. It has to be about and let me just say why about the patriarchal nuclear family. There are many reasons. I mean, studies show that relationships where egalitarian relationships report higher levels of love across race, culture, they report higher levels of love. And many people will say, well, black people have much more egalitarian relationships with white people. I think we do. There's no doubt about it. But one of the reasons we do is because we have to. My question is, if we, if we have that, but we're idealizing something else, my husband has to make more money than I do. I should be able to, you know, just take care of the home or just work a little side job, but he's the provider. He's the, he's responsible for all of this. And we looked at the patriarchal Anglo society that has said, black men are basically boys. We're the patriarchs. Historically, that's exactly what they've said. And the way they've handled it in the modern period is mass incarceration. No, we're not going to allow you to be like we are, so to speak. So when people have those expectations, but because both people have to work, both people have to chip in, if they have those expectations, but they can't live them out, that's going to be a drain on the marriage. I'm saying we need to change our ideas. Patriarchal marriage is not helping us. And I say that also because when I started looking at black men thinking about marriage, first of all, I couldn't find that many studies. I mean, there there's not that many people studying it, but what I found was in, in, in one study in particular where black men and women were questioned, black men and women are looking for one another to move each other up into the middle class. So that black man who's perfectly fine for marriage, mature, responsible has a job but just happens to be making $35,000 a year or 40,000. He's looking for the black woman who's making 55 and 60,000. But guess what? She's looking for the black man who's making 75 and 80,000. So we miss each other. We take ourselves out of the marriage market because we don't have the wealth fall back on we don't have the resources so so the wealth building is is critical you know changing expanding beyond that patriarchal model and let me understand let me be clear what i mean by patriarchal i don't for me i don't care who does what in the household is it valued i have no problem with stay-at-home moms i have people need to decide what works for them but when we say that a man can't be a stay-at-home dad. He's not a real man. Why is this at it? What if it's the mother that has this ambition to take on the world and climb to the top of her car? Co- whatever it is. But mm-hmm. he doesn't. What if he's a painter? What if he, what, he doesn't for whatever reason. And now we're going to demasculinize him because he's taking care, you know, my father was one of the most, I mean, I, he is one of my heroes. And my father didn't make a lot of money. Would I say that my father didn't deserve to be married because he didn't make a lot of money? My father was a machine operator at a ball-bearing company for my entire life until he retired. And he cooked, became my mom. Who had more jobs than my dad for a number of reasons. He cooked, he cleaned, he took us to our music lessons, he took us everywhere we needed to go. He did everything. And he's always, I've never felt less of a man than that. So we need that flexibility. We deserve it. We, for people to grow into who they are, what their talents are, um, and not, not lock us into, um, what a wife is, what a, what a husband is, what a, what's feminine, what's masculine. We need to rethink some of this and, Chapter two will show people why we internalized it in the first place, and that this is not coming from our culture and
1: our heritage. Yeah. So all of that, I I love how you brought all of those major concepts and, and put it all together. And really thinking through what you identify marriage as and is it in really it's a partnership, you know, individuals coming together to join forces in a way that they have these goals, these missions, that it takes the two of them to exceed in those missions. And so thinking through what does that look like? And it may not be these gender roles that we have been socialized into. My husband cooks, cooks and cleans, right? But it allowed me to pursue a doctoral degree. It allowed me to be able to be successful and still have, and be a mother of five. People ask me, how do you do it? My husband is amazing <laughs> and we don't do gender roles. We do what, what does team Ingram need to be successful? I love and, it. it. And, and it may be right now he's focusing on pastoral and I'm out here doing this. It, it, because we're a team and we love each other and it, it allows us to be successful in our marriage because we don't look at it as, you know, this is a, a designed you know, socialized way of doing marriage that maybe our grandparents did it and, and other individuals in our family do, do it. But that's okay. It, it works for us and what allows us to meet our vision and mission in life. And yes, we're, we are pastors. And so we're still able to operate and understand that we're still flowing in the mission and vision that we believe God gave us, but yet we still are doing it in a way that we are authentic, designed to do it. So I'm so grateful that you brought up all those key uh, perspectives and components that individuals can kind of sink into and listen to. I think this is a perfect segue to really go in and allow individuals to kind of put in the chat, ask questions, and really think about where should we be going in this conversation. What, where, how? What are the pathways forward? How do we not just have this moment and this discussion, but we extend the conversation into actionable next items and steps? Mm -hmm. Tamika says, "I think it's important to not get caught up in gender roles, especially when a man is coming home from prison. Ooh, he may struggle to be the financial provider, but he is so valuable in more ways than Trump money. He may feel down on himself." When he is not providing, man, that's real. There's an anonymous attendee who wrote a
2: question in the chat, and I just wanted to bring that to your attention. It says, with the push against Black marriage in in media policy and so on, how do Black people develop a mindset to take ownership of the state of Black marriage and begin making efforts to build love, respect, love and respect of each other, self-respect and humanization to know that we are worthy, to build health margins. Such a great question. You know, I think we have to do this at every level and in every space where we gather. So at the micro level, as individuals, wherever we have influence, with our own children, siblings, spouses, friends, I think we have to keep the conversation going but we need information to do this right i mean i don't want to just tell my book i do think i open this up so that we can we can talk differently about love but there's also people like bell hooks i mean her book the will to change is so phenomenal in terms of addressing the kind of the masculinity issues and the patriarchy and it's so accessible and it's not super long. That book is a game changer to me. She's, she also has salvation, Black people in love. But that book, The World to Change, it's every Black man who cares about this issue, or even just himself. She read about that book. Right? So I think, one, we need information. We need to encourage our communities to gather information. And, and and then where do we meet? Where do we where do we gather? We definitely gather in our religious institutions. Mm-hmm. So and and our religious institutions have been the source of a number of programs and platforms that become national. You know, one of the things I really love about the early Black Church. You know, I'm thinking about Mother Bethel in in, in Pennsylvania. This was you know the Black Church was a meeting space for the Negro Convention Movement, where they were debating and deciding major political. Platforms. It was the political and spiritual pulpit, so to speak. It was the source for that. And so I think one, we need to figure out how do we connect? How do we meet? We also meet on social media. As much as I, oh, I hesitantly came to social media. My niece had to push me to get Instagram, and she was right. I so I had to. My cousin had to push me to reactivate Facebook, which I only opened up the to monitor my nieces and nephews when they were adolescents, the first set of nieces and nephews, and he was right. And uh, Twitter, you know, it is important. So I think it means gathering. My niece just made me open up a clubhouse. So I just told someone, I think that person might be on this call, I'm not sure. I just told someone that I, I want to have a conversation next week about w- why Black men should divest from contagion. And I would like to have Black men in the room. The other place that we begin, for Black men who, who have experienced a new form of humanhood, a form of manhood that does not acquiesce to the stereotype, that is noble, and that is a model for how others can can be in the world and be comfortable with their manhood, we need you to speak. We need you to become our womanist warriors, our, you know, anti-patriarchal warriors. We need black men allies to be on the front lines showing what it looks like. Patriarchy doesn't just hurt black women and children. It hurts black men. It also hurts black men. It it limits black men. It puts them in boxes and places undue responsibility on them in a society that has is always saying you are not a man. You are not a man. So so those are some places that we should begin. I think we need to find ways to gather and use social media to have informed conversations with sympathy and empathy for one another. That's important. With patience for one another. I think we also need to take advantage of our social and religious institutions where we gather and get the message out. Get our churches, our, our mosques, our temples to to, to do programs, I mean, why can't we have a national year of focus on Black love, marriage, and family? Why couldn't we do that in the Black community? You know, and uh, wherever we are, however, so it, those are the things that we need to do. And I always say, you know, I'm not the policy maker. I'm, I'm I'm the scholar. I'm the academic who did the research. But I'd love to be at the table with the policy makers and policy implementers. I'd love to be there. I just it's just not what I do, but. I I think there is a lot that one could take from my book and a number of other books and begin to transform it into workable solutions.
1: So it looks like we have two additional questions that I want you to get to. One is also from an anonymous attendee that says, is there any perspective for you or in your book that discusses the seeming trend for successful black men to abandon the black woman slash family? Or other preferences? That's
2: a really good cool question.
1: So there are a couple
2: of things, and, and I'm actually writing a follow-up book because audiences are asking for more. So I'm going to I'm gonna do a lot more work on on the biblical material because that's my thing. You know, that's my training, my background. So I'm gonna do a lot more work on why I argue that we need new lenses to read these biblical passages that we think are telling women to be submissive, that we think I'm gonna really lay that out and I'm not gonna use big words or I'm going to lay that out in a way that people can understand it. But I'm also going to take this on. It's interesting. For most of when I was doing the research, I even had, you know, grad students who were sociology, fo- you know, fo- focused on sociology. It was really hard for me to get demographic data that took into account class. So we know that black men who are highly successful in terms of the salaries that they owe, earn, who've been highly educated, they marry much later than their white male counterparts is to marry at all. And, and and so, from what I know, we don't exactly know why. I now know, I finally found the stat that says that they also marry three times as much outside the race as Black men overall, right? Black men from other classes. But I do want to say this. So, Black women, the latest statistics we tend to have were that Black women marry about 12% outside the race, Black men 24%. So, it's double that. So, I just want to say something, and I, I don't want people to jump But I am really, really concerned about the black boy adolescent who begins to come into his, his manhood feeling like the only person he would be interested in dating is either a racially ambiguous woman or a white woman or maybe an Asian woman but not a Black woman, and especially not a dark-skinned Black woman. That deeply concerns me. But I just want us to stop for a second. Even if 24% of Black men married outside of their race, that's still 76% of Black men living within the race. The majority of Black men do want to marry within the race. And I just want us to remember that. And so one of the things that I saw in analyzing that OKCupid okay, study which was really interesting is that black men actually discounted white women. So when it comes to dating, now when I, I when it comes to marriage, we can't say what this means for marriage. They, they, they actually discounted white women. So white women had a negative doubt in that study, whereas, um, black women were were giving a premium, a little bit of a premium. The interesting thing though was that Latino women and Asian women were the premium that they gave to Latino women and Asian women was double what they gave to black women. And when you see how deeply discounted black women were by Asian men, Latino men, and white men, it is so sad. Now this is for dating. You know, this is for dating. People, some, some, you know, men can be complicated sometimes and they, you know, they, they, they date differently than, than they marry. So this is what we saw for dating. This is what I think has been going on. I believe that since the MTV, the video TV generation, I could be wrong, but this is kind of anecdotally what I believe you know, the media has had such an influence upon beauty and desire and the black community and the promotion of full skin, a loose circle of patterns, long hair certain kinds of phenotypic features that resemble, uh, you know, the the typical Caucasian features, for example, that has been just beaten into us, especially since it's just been drilled and drilled and it's everywhere. So I do think that you add that to the fact that there's this kind of, you know, the a whole black male athlete, like a whole black male entertainer that just seems to get access, like passport, this whole thing becomes a passport to so many different other people and communities and it makes him all the more attractive to non-black women. I think we are dealing with some challenges, and don't talk about the current television promotions. my goodness. I think we are dealing with some challenges, but I do want us to remember that the majority of black men still want to marry black women, or seem to want to, or at least they do. I think that's important for us to remember I think it, sometimes it feels almost hopeless, but I think we cannot underestimate how important it is to be actively pro-black with our children when it comes on to issues of beauty, value, and desire. Actively pull back black off every shade, mm-hmm. of every skin shade, of every skin shade have to instill in them at a very young age and to actually talk with our children, the young people in our lives about the systemic forces that would that, that, that actually work on them psychologically, even unconsciously, that would seek to shift their focus outward, all right, or to shape their peace and desires and what they understand to be beautiful and valuable. And I tell you, just colorism, it doesn't serve fair complexion people either. What it does, it gives them a false sense of value and beauty based on what? Based on skin color? What is that? Based on the shape of your nose? Really? What is that? How does that help fair skin people? It leads to superficial, um, it can lead to superficial character. It's not fair to them. To even give this impression or that somehow how you look has something to do with what you develop in, 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 uh, on the inside, right? So it, 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 I think it attracts from character building. It, it harms everybody, so to speak. So, yes, it is a problem. And I have seen a lot of very vulgar, vile, very sad things in social media. But I still encourage black women not to give up on black men. I know some, you know, I know some black women have, and I'm going to take on the divestment movement and make, in the next book as well. I still encourage black women. I've got three brothers. I, I can't give up on black men. i got a wonderful father. I, I can't give up on black men. I think um, we have to always come to the drawing table. We have to talk with one another. We have to share what has happened to us so that we can wake up and realize. And let me be clear, I'm not trying to police people's relationships either. I'm not saying that someone can't fall in love with a non-black person. That can happen. It's almost like the hair thing, right? Like, I never want to talk about hair with black women because I never want anybody to think that I'm judging, you know, how black women um, wear their hair. But I, my students would sometimes ask me over the years, and I've worn like, they're all kinds of, slow cut afro, you name it, like braids, all kinds of things. And, you know, now I have these sister locks. But but they would sometimes ask me, and I would say, Mom, if you cannot go out in the rain with your straightened hair and let it get frizzy. Then I would say you probably have some things to work on. But you know, can you perm your hair or can you straighten your hair? That's not for me or anybody else to police that. It really isn't. But do you know what your natural hair looks like? That's the question I want to ask you. Do you even know what it looks like? And I would say the same thing about love. If you make statements like, "Oh, I would never date a dark-skinned woman," or "I would," I would say you have some work to do. If you happen to fall in love with somebody, that's one thing, but if you carry around this perspective that dark skin women are not de- deserving of me. And my understanding is that very, very dark men go around doing that, which I find very interesting. Or you carry around a perspective of, I understand black, dark skin, black, you know, t- typical, traditional, um, traditionally stereotypic African features are ugly are this, or this. Then he's got some work to do. You know, that's what I would say. But let's remember that most black men are and want to be married to black women
1: so i seen a question in the chat i re- recognize that you had we're talking about the, the the beauty and the psychology of beauty and how that impacts our, your perceptions of how you're going to engage in marriage or your choices of, of who you're going to be with and, Yvonne, uh, asked, how do you think the media contributes to interracial marriages? It seems they are very intentional on promoting Black men with other race women in commercials, etc. Do you think this is true or not?
2: Well, it doesn't really think it's true. In fact, that started to come. I think I've seen four commercials with Black couples in the last couple months and uh, uh, relative to 40 with, with white, Black, with uh, racially, Black men with racially ambiguous women or white women. Or the opposite, black women with racially ambiguous women or black women, and even with LGBTQ couples, similar kinds of things. And and I've seen, I mean, they often even do this. They'll have a black man in the commercial with a racially black man who's clearly darker complexion with a racially ambiguous child, even if the, the mother is not in the commercial. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. So I have had several thoughts about this, and this is something I'm going to take up in the new book, in the in the follow up volume. I've had several thoughts about this. You know, one of the reasons we have to be on the front lines doing things is because we live in a culture where white America has never had to truly deal with its own pathology. And this is what I mean. White America has been able to take a very superficial approach to diversity equity and inclusion, they've been able to take a very superficial approach to racial justice because they never go to the foundational problem. They always start with symptoms. Yeah. Oh, George Floyd died through this racist aggression. Um, Deonna Taylor died through this racist aggression. Let's start doing commercials. We all are one in the world. Let's start doing commercials. And certainly some people will say, mixed-race children or multi-race children have a right to see themselves. And I agree. I don't disagree. But when we look at the fact that most black people are married to each other, how does what we see on TV work in proportion to what's actually real on the ground? My first quote. But I can imagine that this is what, what's happening is People are in the boardroom. I'm trying to figure this out right now. I have my research assistants kind of working on this. People are in the boardroom saying, we have to be inclusive. We have to show everybody deserves to see themselves on TV. We yeah. have to do whatever, right? I can imagine people are in the boardroom doing that. And then, oh, that company did it. Now we're going to do it. That company did it. now, And it's just spreading like wildfire. I'll find out because I'm researching this. But what I know is... It is, it is, it is, it is troubling. It is highly troubling because symbols matter. And with this, as this country is based on anti-Blackness, this is how whiteness gets its identity is through an anti-Blackness. One of the pathologies of white society and most whites in this country, even when they're well-meaning, one of the pathologies is that they respond to um, the injustices of a racist America. They respond by engaging in acts that proves that they are not racist. Yeah. That's how they respond. It's never a response that truly equalizes the playing field, play, that truly repairs what has happened. It's always a response that, that shows we're not racist. We're not racist. Look, we're inclusive. And that's, that's the problem with some of these commercials. I'm sure there are all these well-meaning people doing it because they don't want to face what James Baldwin told us we must face Many years ago, what the Field Sisters call racecraft—that the, their their most their most cherished civil religion—and what I mean by that is religion outside of religion, religion outside of the sacred text, outside of church, outside of a thing that binds them together—it's not the flag, the thing that binds this nation together. It's not the flag. It's not monuments. It's not the Constitution. We saw what they did on Capitol Hill. It's whiteness. It is whiteness. And that is the problem with these commercials, with so many of the measures uh, they take. They never have to be serious about addressing the foundational structure, which is an anti-Black racism em- in this country.
1: Now, and, and there's not enough thought leaders at the table either. And so that's my first way of recognizing if they're really trying to, to address anything. Who's a thought leader at the table? I have seen too far too long, we're going to deal with health equity, we're going to deal with racism, and you have no thought leaders that have studied this, like you talked about, the social constructs that are wrapped around, and you're going to continue to get superficial responses because you don't have thought leaders at the table. That know and understand what this is that understands or even knows how to define racism. That's a whole separate conversation because not everybody defines it like it should be defined. So I just want to get to one last question somebody has, but boy, that one, that one got me stirred up a little bit. <laughs> Justin asks, in thinking about going forward, can we conceive of marriage, marriages of more than two people as containing trans Transformative possibilities for black folks. Can we think of marriages more than two people? Meaning polyamory? Do they mean plural marriages? Is that what Justin means? Or do they mean more than two people? Justin, in Justin, is that what you mean? You can kind of put in the chat yes or no.
2: Oh, interesting.
1: Well, it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a good question.
2: I mean, I think we can think of anything, you know, or, or many things. And when I, when I talk about different marriage structures and family formation in our heritage, <laughs> Uh, plural marriage was one of those structures. One of the things that I think is interesting is, I mean, I don't necessarily promote it, to be honest with you, but I'm not, you know, I'm a scholar. I'm not, I don't judge it. You know, I travel to Africa. No, and, and this is really crucial. I tell people this all the time. I was on um, study abroad in Mexico as a senior at Colgate University. And I went into, two people were always fascinated with me, with my grades. They always wanted to talk to me. It was really interesting. Um, and I went into, I was in Chiapas and Chamula and I went into, like, this is, these are some of the most indigenous parts of Mexico. And I went into people's homes of where poor marriage was being polygamous, polygamous homes. People act as if polygamy is African. It's not African. It's global. People were practicing polygamy in Europe, for God's sake. It is a global phenomenon. It is, it doesn't belong to Africans. It doesn't, it is a global phenomenon. This was in 1990. People were practicing polygamy in Mexico. So it is a marriage system. It is true. I think it is true that we do not, we are not monogamous by, our hearts can be, you know, in more than one place at the same time. There's no doubt about it, but I tell you, we need to do another show on this, and I—I would—we need to do something else on this because it's what I've learned about love in the brain. And I tell you, mm. I have these conversations with my students because okay, it was funny. The first Black Love Course, because I had been divorced several times, I was like, "Look, I told them, look, I want my parents to fix me up with somebody. Forget this. Let me find it on my own. Give me my I have students from <laughs> South Asia, Africa, where the parents are very." involved. I was like, give me that. I want that kind of marriage. Okay. I want that traditional marriage. And then I, but then we talk about the modern approach where, you know, it's two individuals who find each other, then the families might get on board later. Whereas mm-hmm. in more of the traditional model, it's marrying the whole family. Well, I tell you, it's in understanding what happens with the brain that I came to understand both models and how they emerge. I tell you, one of the reasons I think monogamous marriage happened in the ways that it did, one, I think it has to do with the change of the economy, the change of, you know, of uh, modes of production and all of that. I think, you know, as society industrializes and things change, you know, the marriage structure changes in many places. But, but I think it has to do with the fact that for our species, we need at least two adults reasoning children, in order for them to have the post-social intelligences and qualities that they need to actually grow up into adulthood, to make it to adulthood, and mate and keep the species going. And so the way the brain works, the chemicals that get involved for lust, for attraction, and for bonding, for staying together, make me understand monogamous marriage, to be honest with you, and why that has emerged. And also, but I can also understand plural marriage in terms of the fact that the way children are reared together with many parents, for example, right? so to me i this is what i want to say i don't want to say that plural marriage is the answer to um, this problem. I don't want to say that. Although some people are are are, are, signing, are doing that. Some people are doing it in, in more than one way or doing the co markering. Some, some people where they have their children have the same father, the father might be in jail. They're getting together. The mothers are getting together, babysitting for one another. It's quite fascinating because that is often a part of plural marriage. But what I don't like is when people, often men, they want to cheat on their spouses or they want to cheat on their girlfriends. And and do this logo in Fidelity. And then they want to then slip up, slip back and call that polygamy. That's not polygamy. Polygamy is a marriage system with rules and regulations of caring for everyone in the marriage system. That is not polygamy. You can cheat on your wives in polygamy and you can cheat on your wife in monogamy. Right? So I would say, sure, I think so. I I don't necessarily promote it in this context because, um, you know, just trouble with the law and the. I mean, maybe we can change the law. I don't know. But I don't necessarily promote it, but I am not. I don't judge it. I think there are all kinds of um, marriage structures that have emerged. And I think culture and even species development has a lot to do with why they've emerged the way they do. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I hope so.
1: Wow, that was awesome. I hope that everybody enjoyed this wonderful discussion, just like I did. And a lot of people were saying they need a part two. Thank you, Dr. Stewart. It has been a wonderful pleasure engaging in this dialogue with you. Thank you,
2: Dr. Ingram. I just so enjoyed getting to know you and learning about this podcast, Langston. And you've got a follower. I I love it. I've already been listening to some of the older ones, so I love it.
0: Thank you for joining this special Women's History Month edition of Entrepreneurial Appetite's Black Book Discussions. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show, give us five stars, leave a comment, or join the Entrepreneurial Appetite Patreon for access to our live discussions. In our next episode, join us for a conversation between Dr. Carrie Lattimore, author of Unshakable Faith, African-American Stories of Redemption, Hope and Community, and Terrence McNeil, Chief Operating Officer of the MoAD Center, a Black-owned co-working space in San Antonio, Texas.